open hearts to be one to you this morning. This morning, we have uh, Pastor Mike Essen up from Columbus, and we are happy to have him here to continue our journey through 1 Samuel. Would you please give him a warm welcome to the front here? Good morning. Well, it's always a, a privilege to come out to Nebraska Christian. Uh, thankful for Tim and uh, uh, the faculty, and it's just uh, always a, pr- a privilege to be here, a pleasure to look at God's Word together. So you can turn to 1 Samuel 18 is where we'll be this morning. Now, I don't know what the other chapel speakers have had. Uh, we're covering three chapters this morning, so I'll probably go into you know two or three of your classes you know, we'll, you'll get back in class like 10 o'clock. We'll do something like that. So um, I don't know what they've done, but we're, we're going to try to cover uh, these three chapters. And as we begin this morning, I, I trust, how many, by raise of hands, I trust a lot of you have, how many of you know the words to Amazing Grace? Probably most of you know at least the first line, and then I trust if I were to sing the other lines, I won't sing, I'll spare you that. But uh, you, they'd be familiar to you. Let me just read for you the second line of that song, and it it kind of presents for us our title for the message this morning. The hymn writer writes this, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And that's uh, the title. If if you're taking notes, you want to title, Dangers, Toils, and Snares, is what I've titled these three chapters as we look at uh, 1 Samuel's 18 through 20. The hymn writer understood that when you become a Christian, it is not a guarantee that life will suddenly now be easy. That, well, I, I've trusted Christ, I have eternal life. Now, now it's just easy breezy, smooth sailing. Not at all. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. God's Word promises that we will have suffering, we will have difficulty. Not only our own sin that we struggle with, but also a world that is hostile to Jesus Christ and therefore hostile uh, to And so it's a, it's a guarantee in our lives to whatever degree, and it's going to be different for every person, there will be some affliction, there will be suffering and hostility, dangers and toils and snares. And we're going to see that this morning in 1 Samuel as the, the book is transitioning now. You guys have... Uh, learned about you've followed Saul and his kingship to this point, how he's been rejected as king. First Samuel 16, the Lord anoints his anointed, and that is King David, who is so important in biblical history to even being a relative of Jesus Christ. He's anointed king. Things start off well for David. Uh, if you saw, I would think it would be last week, but he defeats Goliath. Uh, these are successful times. Everything seems on track. And there's going to be a transition now in the text. Because what you have is David is anointed king, but he's not on the throne. He's not ruling. You still have wicked King Saul and rejected as king, but he's still on the throne, pretending kind of that he has power, that he can do. Again, there's been success now. Uh, David spared Saul on the battlefield by killing the giant. And then you have a meeting with Saul and David at the end of chapter 17. Now these two have met. And if you're reading it, you sense, okay, something's changing. David is going to get to that place. But what's interesting is that this early success for David turns quickly to struggle. 
As 1 Samuel 18 begins this transition, where for several chapters now, David will be struggling with the fact that Saul wants him dead. And the Bible gives us a story like this because it's really anticipating what we find with the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ when he came to earth. That when Jesus came, he wasn't greeted with crowds. Sure, you have the triumphal entry. But Jesus was rejected by his people. The perfect Son of God in human flesh comes and he's rejected and he's nailed to a cross. And the Bible says that all those who are in him, all those who place their faith in him, will also be rejected by this world. And so this text in 1 Samuel is anticipating that when we look at the Bible as a whole. And so keep that in mind this morning. We're going to consider as we look at David's life how God protects him. Now, I want to be careful with this idea of protection because when we talk, and we just saying of God being omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, when we talk about God's protection, we're not saying that that guarantees you'll never be hurt or somehow you'll never die, not at all. But by protection, we mean that God with his children protects us so that if you know him, you would live a life to glorify him until the time, as we just saw in Amazing Grace, he takes us home. In other words, the Lord leads his people, protects us, loves us, cares for us, sustains us. And that's what we're going to see with David uh, in these three chapters this morning. So let's consider God's gracious protection of his people. And we're just going to split it into those three chapters. Chapter 18 we're going to begin with, and we're going to consider God's invisible protection. So again, if you're taking notes, chapter 18, we're going to see God's invisible uh, protection. And and there are times, I trust you've seen this in your life, where you know the moment, you're, you're sensing, you're through faith, that God is watching over you in a particular situation. I think there are those, and we've all experienced this as well, those other times where you, you go through a something intense or something happens that you weren't planning on, back and you go, wow, I was not, as I look back, look at all the ways that God sustained me and protected me. He did this and he did that. But in the moment, you were just living and surviving and, and, and reacting. And then you stop and you take a breath and you go, wow, God was with me and he was caring for me. We're sort of unaware of, of what he was doing in the moment, and we look back with thanksgiving. We're going to see in chapter 18, that's David. He's sort of a passive character here. There, he, doesn't, he doesn't say too much. He's just kind of going around, being successful, fighting battles for God's people. And we're going to see that there's this growing hostility towards him from Saul. And David is unaware. He's just, again, he's, he's like, hey, I'm anointed. I just killed the, the, the giant. And he's serving the Lord in front of Israel. Let me read the first five verses of of chapter 18. We'll start here. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all of Israel or all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So these first five verses, we're reintroduced again to Jonathan. He's the prince of Israel. He's the the next in line to be king if 
And that's what is very ironic about what's taking place here, is that the Lord's anointed, David, has just become best of friends, if we want to say it that way, with Jonathan, the next in line to be king. It's uh, unexpected that these two would, and, and a lot of this language would be so close. You, a lot of this language, you see that their, their souls were knit together. They loved one another. They make a covenant. That'll be important. Chapter 20, it says, uh, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. All this terminology is saying that these two young men loved the Lord. They loved God and they served the God of Israel. And because they had this passion for the Lord, they had this passion for one another in terms of their friendship, and they were in unity, desiring to, as friends, serve the Lord together. Jonathan's faith, then, is also uh, exemplified here. Notice what verse 4 says. He, he takes off his robe and his armor and, <clears throat> and his sword and his bow, and he, and he gives them to David. And you might think, well, what's that mean? Jonathan knew that David was next in line. For whatever reason or however he knew, Jonathan, being a man of God, knew that David was the anointed king, that his father had been rejected. And what's so, again, unique about this is Jonathan, he's the next one to be king. But he's willing to say, no, I serve the Lord, and the Lord hasn't chosen me, he's chosen David. And so, very symbolic to that, his understanding and, and to his submission and to the Lord's anointed, he takes what was the kingly garb, the armor, and he gives it to David. He takes it off as a showing that he's submitting to the Lord's plan, showing that David is the anointed, not Jonathan. Now, at this point in the story, we assume David's quite unaware of how important Jonathan would be. God has provided this friendship for David. And, and David, at this point, is probably unaware. He's going, hey, I got to know Jonathan. We're, we're close. We understand that the Lord is the focus. It's not about me. It's not about him. It's about the Lord. Well, God's going to use this friendship in vital ways in the coming months and years for David. Jonathan will be a huge source of encouragement to the young king as he is uh, running for his life from Jonathan's dad. Stop here for a before we get into more of the story. Consider the faith of Jonathan here. What we see here is that Jonathan knew God, and the result of in the Lord was that the fruit of that was submission. The true faith shows itself, the fruit of true faith is someone who says, Lord, I am yours. I may have had a plan, and you have a different plan. I submit to your plan because we just saying it, because you are good, you're a good father, because you are in control, because you are glorious, because you are the king. And I think this is really important. True faith results in a submission to the Lord and to so exemplified so beautifully in the prince of Israel, Jonathan. Uh, one man said it this way: This deed on his part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against Christ, who is truly Israel's king. I love that. Faith makes us willing to be lesser. I, I think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you think in the New Testament, he was one who was willing to say, you know what? 
It's about Jesus, not about me. And so I will fade into the background as long as Christ is glorified. And that's, that's the attitude of faith. That is a result of true faith. So if we want to be like Jonathan, and I, and I think it's appropriate by, in terms of application, then we need to confess our pride. Confess when we fight against God and his plan. You know, uh, some of you, how many seniors do we have in here this morning? I get a, that's quite a few of you right here in the center, most of you. You know, you look ahead and you maybe have your plans for what's next, college, career. And a lot of times, what if, what if God has a different plan? Are you willing to submit to him? Are you willing to say, God, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to lay these things out, pray through them. But in the end, what if God has a different plan? Are you going to say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm your child. I will submit to you. That's the example Jonathan sets. Well, the story goes on. Let me read just a few more verses from chapter 18. We're picking it up. The, the, the armies are coming home after uh, the victory with Goliath. It's a joyous time for Israel. Verse 6, as they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. We see the transition. They come home. This is a wonderful time for Israel. Goliath and the Philistines have been defeated. And this is the number one hit as these women go out and they're singing this song. It's kind of odd to us. Let's sing a song about how many people our king and this other military guy have killed. Woohoo! And they're celebrating all the slain of, remember, the Lord's enemies. Saul, his thousands. David, his ten thousands. Now keep in mind, this song, these women aren't saying David is better than Saul. This is, uh, this is actually just uh, poetry. It's, it's lyrics. They're, they're simply saying, look at how God has brought Israel through the king. But everybody knows Saul didn't kill Goliath. David did. And so they, they sing this song celebrating both men, celebrating the victory. But Saul takes it. For him, it's, not a, it's, it's bad enough that David is just in the lyrics at all. In Saul's life, Saul is number one, and that's it. There's no number two. There's nobody like him. Saul is all about Saul. And we're going to see that as we keep going through these chapters. You're going to see it. It's all about himself. And the fact that David is even in these lines sung by these joyous women as they're celebrating the Lord in an occasion when God is really the one on display Saul's focus goes back to himself, and he begins to be jealous. Now he considers David a threat. And, and likely what's taking place here is Saul knows, remember, it was chapter 13, I believe, in chapter 15, where Samuel, the prophet, came to Saul and said, you've been rejected as king. The kingdom's going to be taken from you, stripped from you. That's important, that, that terminology of stripping something, taking it away. It's going to be given to your neighbor. And you would think from that day forward, Saul's going, who is it? Who's the one who's taking the kingship away? And suddenly, there's the women singing, and suddenly Saul is going, that's him. 
That's my biggest threat. Which is so sad. David had saved his bacon on the battlefield. Again, Saul did out against David. Well, so now he considers David a threat. And you see his, his jealousy growing. Uh, end of verse 9. Saul eyed David from that day on. Well, let me fast forward through the rest of the chapter, verses 17 through 30. This jealousy intensifies, but understand at this point, Saul is the only one who knows he's got to kill David. David. David needs to be off the scene if he wants to remain king. And so you have quite a few stories where this is developing. Uh, again, David is a passive character. There's, he's not going, man, Saul's after me. Uh, we've seen this before. You've seen it before in Samuel. Saul is terrorized once again by an evil spirit. Again, when, when one submits to, gives in to their sin, they are now open to attacks like this. Uh, at least that's what we can gather from 1 Samuel. Well, David goes to, to, to soothe Saul. Saul twice tries to kill him with his spear. Just a, a really important lesson here, guys. If, if somebody's going crazy and they have a spear in their hand, don't play a harp for them. Just don't do that. You're all awake, right? Okay. Wow. I'm actually really bad at comedy, too. So, anyways, David does this twice. He plays his harp. Saul tries to pin him with a spear. He does it twice. It shows David's loyalty. He runs from him, but he keeps coming back. Because, again, for David, it's like, okay, something's wrong with Saul, but he doesn't hate me. David can uh, serve the Lord. He has success in battles. Saul has a new plan. What he desires to do is have David marry his daughter. And the reason for this is if David marries his daughter, now David is the number one target for the Philistines. They can't get to Saul, but if they could kill his son-in-law, that's, that's Saul's plan. Well, David doesn't want to marry his daughter because he feels he's not rich enough. He's very humble. But eventually there is a daughter of Saul's named Michal, and she loves David. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And David ends up marrying. We see that uh, he gets success in the battlefield. One final, a couple final notes as we get out of chapter 18, and we see this invisible protection of God. The way that God does this is he is with David. The text shows us, look at verse 14 for a moment. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Notice verse 28 and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. God is with him. God is sustaining him. That's what he has promised to do by anointing him. Also, something that's very ironic in this passage, Saul hates David, but David protects him by so many people loving him. The text says that all Israel loved him. The text says, if you see that in verse 16, all Israel and Judah loved David. Jonathan loved David. Michal, who would become his wife, loved David. In all these things, God is blessing and protecting his servant. Now again, I would say one of the major lessons we can learn from this is just God's invisible protection. Even in those moments when we're unaware and we're distracted, understand that, if, students, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, he loves you, he cares for you, he watches over you, he protects you, he sustains you. He's actively sustaining you, both physically and spiritually, in every aspect of your lives. 
I think of Romans 8.28, a very familiar verse. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We may not always be aware of God's protection of us, but he is always there and he always has a plan. I was reminded of this this week. Uh, Sunday afternoon, we, uh, we, had, we had church in Columbus at Highland Park, and I came home. I did what I normally do on Sunday afternoons. I enjoy NFL football watching that, and I was kind of in that, like, watching football fading into a nap, tired from the morning, and I got a text that one of the members of our congregation had had a heart attack, and his wife had texted me after the fact. She said, hey, so-and-so had a heart attack. He had surgery. He's, he's in recovery now. And so uh, me and my wife were able to go visit this member, and <clears throat> it's quite amazing to talk with him because it was one of the things where the doctors told him, if you didn't come in when you did, you wouldn't be here. And so they were just reflecting on, okay, I did this Friday, I did this Saturday, I had this pain, I thought I'd ignore it. Their plan was, hey, let's go to the doctor on Monday. But Sunday morning he went, I can't do this anymore. They went in and he ended up going right into surgery because he was having a heart attack. And I was reminded with this passage, just those moments where you go, in the moment, we're not aware of all that God's doing. But you look back and you go, praise God for how he sustains his people. And I know the text is referring to mainly hostility, but it's true in suffering, disease, illness. God is watching over people, carrying out his plan. And I was just reminded of that. And I hope it's a wonderful illustration for us that God is sustaining us. Number two, we turn to chapter 19, and it's humbling protection. <clears throat> and we'll go a little faster now. God's humbling protection. One of the things that's important when we consider who God is is that because he's in control, we often say he's sovereign, that means he's in control. This means that nothing happens randomly. Nothing happens where it's like where God goes, well, I was busy with this, but this happened over here, and I didn't know that, and I didn't plan that. Now, everything the Lord has a purpose in our lives, and we're going to see that with both David and Saul in chapter 19. What we see here is a transition. Saul's hatred for David goes public. He goes to Jonathan and his servants. He says, go kill him. I want him dead. Well, Jonathan goes, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. So he, he, he tells David, I'm going to talk to my dad. He talks to Saul. And he persuades Saul for just a moment to stop being a fool and hunt David. And so Saul and David are reunited. Let's pick up the story there. Verse 8, there was war again. This is chapter 19, verse 8. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they, were, they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. There we are again with a spear. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning, but Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? 
And Mikkel answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Well, clearly there, again, is this satanic influence behind Saul, as well as he's a sinful, foolish man. Again, ironically, his daughter helps David escape as he's in his home, and he sends messengers to take him out of his home and bring him to Saul so that he kills him. David is lowered down the window, and and just in this moment, think about this. This is the man that God said, you will be king. You will be the anointed one. You will lead my people. And here's David being led down out of a window, and now he is Israel's most wanted. He's on the run. These are, these are humbling circumstances for the, for the king. Humbling circumstances. In his mind, it must have been like, God, Why? said I would be king and here I am being lowered down from a window running away from your people and we might say why well part of the answer to that is that God is strengthening his child God is teaching David dependence on him and God does this, this in our lives I mean one of the only ways that God teaches us to trust him and depend on him is by taking us through difficult times in life so that we say, Lord, uh, the only thing I can do is pray. The only thing I can do is trust you because I'm clearly not in control of my life or the situation. In fact, I would encourage you to jot down Psalm 59. Uh, This psalm was written by David as those messengers waited outside his house. And so as he knows they're there to carry out Saul's orders to kill him, let me just read a few verses from Psalm 15. Uh, I'll read verses 1 and 10, verses 9 and 10. Listen to David's faith here. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who... O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look and triumph on my enemies. <clears throat> that is so important. He says, God, you are my steadfast, you, you have a steadfast love for me. You are my fortress. That is what God does when he humbles us. We, we grow in our dependence upon him. We go through situations so that we can say, God, it is clear to me now, you're my fortress. It's not about me, it's about you and trusting you. Well, the rest of chapter 19 is very weird. Uh, We see Saul's messengers. These guys are kind of incompetent. They don't really know what they're doing. They keep getting in their own way. It's almost comical what happens. I mean, even them going to the house. They go to the house, they go, oh, Saul, we couldn't kill him. He's sick. What? What? I just want him dead. I don't care if he has the flu. Go back and get him. And they go back and then he's, you know, they find out there's an idol in the bed, not David. Well, the same thing happens in verses 18 down to the end of the chapter, verse 24. What David does is he runs to Naoth. This is where Samuel the prophet is. Samuel takes him to another area and there they're hiding. And so Saul finds out and he sends his messengers to the city where Samuel the prophet is and David are hiding. And it's really weird. They're and I don't even have an explanation for exactly what's going on here, but Samuel seems to have had some sort of like school of prophecy or something going on where these 
prophets in training are singing and prophesying, the text says. And you can glance as I go through it quickly. One group of messengers, a second group, and a third group come in. And what happens is they come in, they're looking for David to bring him back to Saul, and they start prophesying themselves. The Spirit of God comes upon them, they start prophesying, and they forget what their mission is, and they fail at it. it happens three times. Now again, I don't know exactly what's happening. Are they singing? Are they, what's going on? We don't really know. What we do know is that God is intervening. He is divinely protecting his servant. In other words, sinful men are no match for God and for purposes, and that is crystal clear from the text. No, no plan of man, no scheme of man, as the hymns say, can, can, can change God's plan. God is in complete control, and that is crystal clear. Let me pick it up in verse 22. Then he himself, that is Saul, he goes, all right, if you guys can't do it, I'm going to do it myself. Again, it's quite comical. His messengers fail at everything. He's like, all right, I'll do it myself. He went to Ramah, came to the great well that's at Sekiu, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, verse 23. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, and he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Very weird account what's happening here. You have this man that has set himself up against God. Remember, God has said, Saul, I have rejected king. And Saul has said, no, I'm king. He's set himself up against God. So he goes to find David, and what does God show him? God humbles him. And again, the imagery here is very important. When it says that Saul is uh, stripping off his clothes and he begins to prophesy, do you understand? Remember, contrast that with Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan took off his robe. Jonathan took off his armor and voluntarily, willingly gave it to David. In other words, God, I'm a willing servant to you. Saul is forced to take it off because God is saying, I'm sovereign, you aren't. It's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of judgment. God has removed him from being king, and the symbolism there is him removing his clothes and looking so humbled in that moment. Before we move on to the next chapter, I would just tell you and ask you to examine yourself this morning. Are you Jonathan or are you Saul? When you consider your heart this morning, are you Jonathan, where you're, you've submitted to Christ, you're not perfect. No, no believer is perfect. We still have our sin. But you desire with your life to serve the Lord. Or are you Saul to where you may be, may be here, you may sing the songs, you listen to the word, but you have set your plans against God. You will do whatever you want, and you are determined to do that. Students, I would tell you this morning, if that's you, repent and turn to the Lord. Turn to Christ, who is the true king, but that king died on the cross for sinners like you and me. That king rose from the grave. There is forgiveness in Christ alone, no matter how rebellious you are or you've been. Know that there's forgiveness in him. Thirdly, this is lastly, as we look at chapter 20 now, 
Let's consider God's promised protection. And we'll be brief here. God's promised protection. I think what's important about this chapter is maybe you're looking at these things and going, well, I have a hard time trusting God. If I would have an experience like David, where I see prophets and people going crazy, and I see this demonstration of God's protection, then maybe I would understand that God is protecting me. Let me tell you this morning, we have something far better than these supernatural, almost miraculous events like what we see here and elsewhere in Scripture. We have the promises of God, and we have the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have something far better than what these saints in Scripture had. We have Christ, and we have His promises. And chapter 20 leads to this. Again, let me just uh, quickly read the first four verses. David fled from Naoth and Ramah, came uh, to Jonathan. What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, that is Jonathan said to David, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, is your, If your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And what these two young men do is they, the, the text says that they covenant with one another. That We saw this in chapter 18. And by covenant, what I mean by that is they make binding promises. David, or Jonathan says to David, I promise you, friend, I will protect you from my dad. I will do all I can to protect you. And then Jonathan says, well, you make a covenant with me. And and that promise from David is, when you're king, David, remember my line. Remember my descendants. When you're king and you can get rid of all your rivals, and my children and my descendants, So these two boys make a covenant, these promises with each other. We'll fast forward through the rest of the chapter. What happens is Jonathan goes to this festival where Saul is there. Saul expects for David to sit at the table with him, and Jonathan and the general Abner, these four men, will sit and celebrate together. Saul hopes David comes so he can kill him. Well, David shows up the first day. Saul's like, okay. Second day, he says, Jonathan, where's he at? And Jonathan says, oh, and he makes up a lie. That's for another time about the, the, the morals of how you see so many uh, characters in Scripture lying. But Saul gets mad. He basically curses out his son, and he, we've gotten familiar with this, throws a spear at Jonathan now, tries to kill him. Jonathan gets angry. He leaves. <clears throat> well, he had set up a plan with David that he would come and tell him. If, if, if he knew that Saul was against him, then he would let David know that's part of those promises. And so he goes and he tells him. And then again, let me close here. Verse 41, as soon as the boy had gone, that is this plan where he was going to shoot some arrows and the lad who collected the arrows, he leaves. David rose from behind the stone, his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the more. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, that's covenant language, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. 
there's a sad but, again, beautiful departure. These, these two will meet again briefly when David is at a very low point and Saul is uh, going after him. The point here is the security that David had provided through his friend Jonathan. <clears throat> there were promises made, and Jonathan fulfilled those promises to this point. He said, I will do all I can to protect you from my dad. And he risks his own life. He goes to his father and says, why are you going after David? Why would you do this? And he even gets a spear hurled at him to put him to death. And he walks away from his dad saying, no, this is not going to happen. And he goes and he lets David know so that David can now go on the run and get away from Saul. And that will begin several chapters of David being away from God's people Well, this story anticipates something even greater in Scripture. The story, as we look at Jonathan, who was a sinful man, anticipates one who is perfect in fulfilling his promises, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has given us several promises, and he's faithful to fulfill them. He is our ultimate protection, the ultimate protection for sinners. Like all of us here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just close with one. As we find them all throughout the scriptures, John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29, our Lord Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That is a wonderful promise that we, that if you are in Christ, students, you are secure. No one can take away that eternal life. Let me pray for us, and then I'll uh, read a couple of discussion questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for these students, how attentive they are, God. That is such a blessing. Father, we thank you for your continual care and the fact that you sustain your people. Thank you, Jesus, that you have promised that those who trust in you those who receive your salvation, that they are secure because you've promised it. We thank you, Heavenly Father, in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, A couple of questions, and I'll give this sheet to to Tim, if anybody else um, want to pass around. Uh, Think of times where you've been protected. Can you think of some times where God has protected you? What should be your response to his continual care? A second one, what does Jonathan's response to David teach about faith? Why is faith essential in submitting to God's authority? And then thirdly, how does Jesus and his promises give you confidence in difficulties? How does Jesus and his promises give you confidence in difficulties? And hopefully those are helpful for discussion this morning. So, thank you.